My conversation partner today is a very dear friend. In fact, friend isn't even uh, good enough. Uh, I would like to say a brother, a confidant, a counselor, a role model, and on and on and on it goes. <laughs> because joining me today is Dr. Gary Waldron. At least that's how I was first introduced to him as. Uh, at the time, he was a professor at the seminary where I had matriculated in a doctor of ministry program. He was my chief advisor for that uh, pursuit and soon became more of a spiritual director for me. And Gary, first I'll welcome you to Shank Talks Bunhofer. Welcome to the place Thank I you, sometimes <laughs> I sometimes like to call this Niemöller's Kitchen. And uh, mm. so good to have you on the other end of it. I'm on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's so good to hear your voice. Thank you very much, Rob. It's great to be here and great to be having this conversation with you. You know, right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you, not only do I owe you a great debt of gratitude, but the Institute, uh, that sponsors this podcast, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute owes you a debt of gratitude because had it not been for your direction during my doctoral years, uh, there would not be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. So thank you, dear friend. We make you an honorary founder. You're welcome. I kind of feel like you give me too much credit, though. Um, you were already... Uh, standing on the edge of the cliff. I just walked by and gave you a little push. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. And a friendly one at that. Uh, well, Dr. Gary Waldron, you've been so many things professionally. Uh, you are many things to many people personally. Uh, but before we get into the CV, maybe we'll just start with who you are as a person. Uh, I know you weren't born a professor. Maybe you were of a sort, but, uh, but you came into the world as most of us do. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? This, this, uh, this particular episode is about getting to know our senior fellows, getting to know the influencers, in the universe of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, you are certainly one. And we'd like to get to know you personally. Uh, can you give us the little bio sketch? Uh, yes, um, I was born and raised outside of Philadelphia. Uh, I went to Penn State uh, for my undergrad. And uh, halfway through college is when I had a really profound encounter uh, with God and, and got very involved in a, a campus ministry that was very, very formative. Um, I did a short-term mission trip to Japan and really kind of caught the bug for overseas ministry at that time. And uh, after graduating, uh, went to China for actually a total of six years, uh, learning the language, uh, teaching, and then also at one point doing my uh, PhD research 
in higher education reforms in China. Uh, I met uh, at the time I met uh, my wife and uh, we have three kids. Uh, we're currently divorced. Uh, the children are all uh, doing well. They're out of college and launched and, and living their best lives as far as I can tell. And uh, I went through a big transition 10 years ago to uh, living in a Catholic worker community here in Tacoma, Washington, that was founded by a Jesuit priest, Bill Bixell. And uh, we occupy 10 houses around a city block in Tacoma. So it's kind of like an urban village. And uh, we provide transitional housing for homeless folks and recent immigrants and people who have uh, been released from incarceration, as well as uh, other services for uh, poor and marginalized people in our community. And so I went from being a, a professor and a world traveler to uh, living a very simple life of service. And I would say that both of these suited me uh, at those seasons of life. And there I describe it as a, a kind of monastic uh, lifestyle. Uh, I've been out to the uh, to the community with you. I've been to the house where you once lived. Now you live in a different uh, building, but um, I know the setting there. And I want to spend some time on the Catholic worker community there because it, there's a real nexus with. Bonhoeffer, and of course, uh, his experience at the brother's house, at the seminary, particularly Finkenwalde. So uh, I'd like to get back to that in a minute. But before I do, I want to sort of locate you in terms of your cultural arc uh, as well, because when I was introduced to you in absentia, when uh, various faculty at uh, my alma mater, where you were teaching at the time, uh, described you as somebody who really knows what's going on because, you know, not only were you doing ministry work in China, but it was with one of the Grahams, that is, one of the Billy Graham family members, <laughs> a, a son of Billy Graham, you were working with at the time. So you were really close to kind of the, the heartthrob of American evangelicalism, albeit on a different continent, but emanating from here, from the United States. So you really have a baptism in American evangelical culture, or at least you did. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of working in that kind of environment and maybe how you look at it today as compared to when you occupied that seat? Okay, wow, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I would say I was I was pretty uh, involved in the the evangelical world, um, both, you know, traveling and, and visiting a lot of churches throughout America, um, promoting uh, my work and the work of my organization overseas. Um, I was in a lot of um, even um, denominational meetings, a lot of strategy meetings, a lot of um, the Christian foundation world 
which was a very interesting uh, experience as well. Um, and uh, I guess, um, you know, one of the, the real impacts of Bonhoeffer in my life was reading Cost of Discipleship in college and really having this all-in attitude, you know, the, the not, not cheap grace, not, well, you know, thanks for saving me, Jesus. I'm just going to go about my life. Please bless all my material pursuits. Um, but, you know, this is, a, this is a deep and profound calling that should significantly, you know, if a person is a Christ follower, uh, you know, I don't want to say consume their life, but certainly uh, not just be an addendum to. And I think that was a little bit of my frustration with the American Evangelical Church. It seemed like a lot of the churches I went to were were very um, upscale. Were were kind of you know we need God to help us uh, accomplish the American dream. Um, you know I remember coming back from China and you know being so profoundly impacted by the the, the growth of the church there under you know incredibly um, a persecuted environment. And then, you know, I would share some of that in a, in a home meeting in, in America and, and I would get these glassy stairs and then people would ask for prayer requests of what dining room table they should buy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and just, just being like, wow, I, you know, I hear, you know, there's such profound things happening and, but the mindset of most Christians is, is just sort of, you know, keep on, getting the the climbing the ladder of the american dream and i just you know where's the where's the discipleship where is the the real um you know encountered ongoing spiritual formation uh with the person of christ and and not this sort of addendum thing um i guess um i look back at you know the the folks i worked with in in missions um were really so generally caring and and wanting and believing that you know that that the gospel was you know the best thing that could happen to someone anywhere in the world um i wonder if some of the um you know now that i look back and i look back at the history of missions i i kind of see the the colonialism that's right next to it and and i i wonder if i wasn't you know involved in you know, really kind of a colonial pursuit versus uh, just a, a a missionary spiritual um, pursuit um, as I look back at that time in my life. But I think a lot of incredibly good things were done in that work um, at one point. Uh, so this was in the late 80s, early 90s. We were able to get together uh, 24 Christian organizations that all wanted to do some kind of HIV AIDS work in China, and China was actually asking Christian organizations for help in that area, and we were able to uh, put together some really uh, effective partnerships around education, around um, treatment, and and around uh, support for uh, victims' families and things like that. Um, so I generally you know, look look back upon that time and, and the people that I. Um, that I worked with as, as being a very enriching time and, and being very good work at heart, if not possibly some of the, the mannerisms and some of the things may have been a little bit too American. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, mm. and, then, and then my own spirituality, 
I just I, I started to to go more from listening to sort of the popular, you know, evangelical pastors to to moving into more um, to more of the mystics and and even people like Richard Rohr, you know, a, a Catholic Franciscan um, and, and just just wanting wanting something deeper, wanting something a little bit more mystical than I was getting uh, sort of fed from sort of the evangelical uh, machine <laughs> at the time. Um, yeah. yeah, there is a, a kind of popular gospel, uh, and certainly one that you describe. Uh, I was searching for a Bonhoeffian phrase and probably bourgeois church uh, <laughs> might fit uh, in terms of his language. Um, and and I know that your spiritual pilgrimage deepened in that transition to the mystics, to the reflective, um, contemplative types, even the contemporary ones yes. that you just named, uh, and, and that you went through your own personal transformation. And if Bonhoeffer's story is about anything, it is most certainly about transformation. And it's one thing I really appreciate about your ministry at the time we met each other, because mm -hmm. I remember in particular a retreat that you led, and I was part of uh, my doctoral cohort participated, and it was revolutionary for me, uh, absolutely mm. revolutionary. Uh, we were in the Lutheran manse, I think, down in the basement yeah, room. Yeah, we were in the basement of the church. It was a, a fireside basement room. I remember that very well. That That's right. In fact, I can see you sitting in front of the fireplace now. <laughs> and, uh, and you led us through a number of spiritual exercises. And I happened to be in a cohort that was dominated by African-American pastors, most of whom were based in, in urban settings. Um, and hearing those men share their stories, some of them in, in almost shocking disclosure about themselves, about their environments, about their families, their formation, mm -hmm. and so on. It, it just revolutionized not just my my understanding of my fellows, but but of the gospel itself and who mm. Jesus is to them as compared to who Jesus was to me at the time. So mm. thank you for all of that. I mean, that was certainly the fruit of your own of your own spiritual journey. Mm. And, and 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 what about that transition? I mean, yes, you went from sort of the classic, maybe quintessential American evangelical uh, minister at large, if you will, um, to, to really a, a, a kind of monastic service in the community that you're in now. And, and maybe you could spend a little more time for those who may not be familiar with the Catholic worker uh, movement and Dorothy Day and so forth. Could you tell us a little bit about the Catholic workers so we can get the context of the community you now live in? Yes. So uh, Catholic worker uh, movement was started by uh, Dorothy Day, who was a, um, 
a peace activist and a feminist, and she had kind of a dramatic conversion to Catholicism and started to uh, write. She was a prolific writer, um, through a number of books. Her uh, biography or autobiography is called The Long Loneliness. And um, she also wrote a paper called The Catholic Worker. And um, of course, the Catholic Church wanted to, to get her to stop writing that because she was using the term Catholic. And they said, you know, you're not speaking for us. But in her marriage of, of peace activism and the gospel, she spoke out against uh, nuclear weapons. And she would say things like, you know, if you feed a hungry person, you're a saint. If you question the system that made them hungry, you know, then you're a communist. And she did not mind questioning the system. And so she, uh, in her home in Brooklyn, started to um, practice what she called radical hospitality, as well as personalism, which is an approach to serving poor and marginalized people by living with them and getting to know them versus simply you know, volunteering at a soup line and somebody comes by and you give them some food, that's great, but you don't know that person, you don't know that story. So it was important for her to, to live um, simply and, and to live uh, as close to the people she was serving as possible. And her movement then began to reflect that. So there's about 100 Catholic workers around the country. It's not a franchise. There's no national headquarters. Um, it, it's, in fact, there's really no, besides um, me being Facebook friends with a couple of the communities, there's really no, no connection at all. Each, um, each Catholic worker community um, does their own thing. Uh, the basis is, you know, coming together for a, a spiritual motivation uh, motivated by the acts of mercy to uh, be involved in serving the poor and marginalized of the, the neighborhood and to be engaged in social activism uh, causes. So uh, Dorothy Day was arrested several times uh, for her um, uh, outspoken feminism and, and her acts and, and our founder, Bill Bixell, was also arrested several times for his uh, actions against uh, nuclear weapons. And um, so a real man of conscience, and he started our community uh, 35 years ago. He passed away uh, in the community five years ago, and we've continued uh, to grow the work. The Catholic workers um, choose to live simply. We choose to live in intentional community with one another. Uh, we do not get paid, although we do get um, housing. So in order to do this work, we have to live in community. So the housing is provided, um, but no, no funds uh, above and beyond that. So the Catholic workers uh, live very simply. We invite um, our main hospitality house here in Tacoma. It's called the Guadalupe House, and it has 13 bedrooms. Um, and we invite... As I said earlier, folks who are either homeless or uh, recent immigrants who don't have any family support in the country or folks who have come out of incarceration uh, to be in our live with us in the house, in the community, uh, generally for it seems to be about a year or a year and a half it takes for, for folks to, to begin to get a job, begin to um, address any medical or psychological challenges they have, and to be ready to move from here into something that's sustainable for them long term. 
Um, so yeah, I did. I went from from being a professor, from from traveling around the world a lot with that ministry uh, to living just a very very simple life. And um, and again, I, I can't say that one suited me better than the other. It was just a season, and and I I did that ministry. I'm I'm proud of what was accomplished there. And when it was time to transition, um, I actually transitioned pretty easy into. Uh, you know, selling the house and downsizing and really just occupying a single room uh, in a larger house. Um, and I found that being free of all that stuff also created a lot of time and space for me to really be present um, and serve the folks that, that we're living with. Mm -hmm. Just to get a little uh, a time stamp on all of that, Dorothy Day was what, uh, 1950s was yes that... i believe she died in the 80s mm -hmm. but that so yeah so the movement launched what uh shortly after world war ii would that be the timeline yeah yes and then uh your founder for the community you're in now um what would have been his heyday if you will uh 1980s yeah, I would say yes. Uh, I would say um, he was uh, in his early 80s when he passed away. So he was really uh, impacted in the 60s and 70s, I think, were his real active times. And then he founded around that time he found in the 80s, he founded our community. Um, he was one kind of funny story about Father Bix. He um, led a delegation to uh, to Japan to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was almost like a, an apology tour. <laughs> mm. um, and when he was being hosted by his, his Japanese hosts, uh, they're like, oh, we want to give you a gift. You know, they exchange gifts. And so he got a little um, painting of a dove <laughs> and uh, he brought it back. And upon further inspection, it was a original Picasso. <laughs> Picasso had also oh. gone to Japan and he had gifted it to the Japanese. The Japanese turned around and gifted it to Father Bix. Oh my goodness. So here's this poor, here's this, you know, dirt poor priest with, you know, an original Picasso. So he, once we oh. discovered what it was, it was like, whoa, 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 wait, you know, don't put it in your drawer in your desk. You know, we need to take care of that. Oh and, my um, goodness. We ended up, we, we, um, it's now hanging in the, the library at the University of Washington, Tacoma, uh, just, just a couple blocks away. But uh, um, anyway, I always thought that was a funny story of oh, Father Big Set. <laughs> that's a great story. And, uh, and no doubt that that exchange between Picasso and uh, his Japanese hosts had something to do. Yes. Wasn't Picasso... Uh, uh, an anti-war uh he was activist yep. yeah he was a peace peace advocate uh, i know uh, what what was his famous series on the on the on guernica was the uh the terrible uh imagery of war mm. and it's and the suffering and all of that how nice to know he did a dove i i, I didn't know anything yeah. about that story thank you wow yeah, uh, I always say we've hardly 
begun to mine the depths of, of your experience out there and uh, more just keeps coming. Um, and what about, okay, so, you know, you, speaking of bourgeois, you, you lived kind of a typical American middle-class professional religious worker's life. Now you're living uh, at in a single room uh, in a collective home. Yeah. In Tacoma, Washington, I was there. I saw your little basement room. It was quite humble. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually, honestly, I remember drawing an association in my mind when I saw you in that small bedroom uh, of Bonhoeffer in his cell at Tegel. And I know mm. you weren't suffering quite like he was. But, no. no. But the adjustment, you know, Bonhoeffer, of course, lived that upper-class life in Dahlem, uh, very prosperous yes. community, you know, in the suburbs of Berlin, and went from that to a cell uh, in Tegel. And that isn't quite the same. I mean, ultimately, his suffering was unspeakable uh, under right. his Nazi captors. But initially, it wasn't so bad. And he described it as being not so bad. And he had you know, an ability to communicate with family and people would bring him gifts of food and tobacco and even some mm -hmm. alcohol and he had a great rapport with his jailers and so forth. So, it, it, you know, it was not quite what we would imagine it eventually became. It was not initially. So he went from comfort to a really stark uh, elementary kind of existence i saw you do something of the same without the mm -hmm. uh you know without the the bars yeah uh, it was or, my choice <laughs> yes it was uh it, it very much was and, and i think you know now somebody might wonder well what do you do when when you make that move into a community like that do you spend the whole day in prayer like a a monk uh, it seems to be a pretty active place. What is a typical day in the life of a Catholic worker community member in Tacoma? What does that What does that look like? What does a day look like? Yeah, I was describing my life to a friend with a Catholic background, and and he said, "Okay, so you're not really like a monk because it's not a monastery. You're you're more like a friar." And I said, well, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you know, a friar." you know, lives out his vocation and does his good works in the community. He doesn't sequester himself away like a monk does in a monastery. So I would say I'm more like a friar. And in <laughs> fact, at one point I was supporting myself by making some handmade leather journals. And, um, and I came up with the term uh, rogue friar. And I remember. that became, and Rogue Friar became my, my sort of little business. And I would dress up in kind of monkish clothes and uh, I would be a Rogue Friar selling my, my journals, which I loved just because a journal really, again, it's a tool of contemplation. And so I, as I sold those, I, I felt like I was inviting people into a more contemplative way to be in the world. Um, a day in the life of the Catholic worker, um, yeah, wow. Um, we have uh, we have uh, our guests, and uh, 
yes, a, a Guadalupe house um, is not required to pay any rent, but if they're working, they begin to save half of their money um, of their paycheck so they can begin to, to you know, save uh, first and last month's rent kind of thing. And we also have uh, contact meetings with them every week. So two Catholic workers will meet with each guest every week. And that is to, you know, how are you doing? How are you moving forward on your goals? Can I, we connect you with some, um, you know, employment opportunities? Can we tech, put you on some low-income housing lists? Um, can we help you find a vehicle? You know, just the support that people need to just get traction in their life again. So a lot of the times it's it's supporting uh, supporting the people here. Um, we, the five Catholic workers, are all very close. We meet twice a week and and support one another spiritually, emotionally, and um, and then we do the work as well. We have fundraising campaigns. We just updated our our um, our website and put out like a year end report. Um, we have eight houses that we own around the city block, and they're all in various stages of uh, disrepair. Uh, we actually had to put a joist underneath the two-story Guadalupe house last week uh, because when we tore up the floor in one to redo one room, uh, we found that you know the joist had been rotting away. So uh, this morning I was over at the house. We welcomed two uh, volunteers who have carpentry skills, which I do not have. <laughs> Um, I joke that I overeducated myself so I wouldn't have to do anything practical in the world. Um, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of practical things to be done here. I'm on a first name basis with the people at the local dump because I make so many trips there with our truck, um, either hauling away old building materials or we have a huge community garden and sometimes there's yard waste. And so, um, so it's not all that glamorous. It's it's meeting and supporting people. It's it's doing work projects. It's raising funds, um, and and uh, right now it's challenging on G Street where Tacoma is. Um, definitely during COVID, uh, there's a lot of people that are camping um, in tents and RVs on our road, and and uh, we pass out food to them. We we uh, have set up a an outdoor um, water source so that they can have uh, fresh and clean water um, and you know sometimes uh, the energy on the the street can get kind of wonky sometimes there's you know drug activity and things like that um, uh, there's been two huge tent fires on the so sometimes we're calling the calling the fire department to put out the tent fire and and hoping that the folks that were in it, you know, got out in time. Um, and so we're, we're trying to support people who are living on the street as well. Um, so it can be, yeah, it can be challenging work and it's incredibly rewarding. We just had uh, three people in the last month uh, move out of our house into really good situations for themselves. And, you know, they reflect on, you know, wow, a year and a half ago when I came here out of the shelter, you know, I had my belongings in two trash bags, you know, and now I'm working and I have a, and I have a car and I was able to get into a low income apartment. And then we go down to the furniture bank and we help them get furniture so that they're set up in a new place. Um, so it's a lot of activities like that, supporting people 
repairing buildings and uh, and caring for the people on our street. Mm-hmm. You know, again, as you just uh, describe all of that, um, I can't help but make associations. I think of Bonhoeffer and his students at Zingst uh, with the underground seminary there. And again, you know, I know you're familiar with his work in Life Together, and it sounds very much like the kind of community he was attempting to build. Uh, of course, you know, it was frustrated by uh, by the, the corrupt, uh, you know, mm-hmm. dictator state that scuttled yeah. all of that. But had he, I think... Uh, continued, it, it would have looked very much like the community and and uh, the work you just described. I, I was, I wanted to just revisit your terminology there because I think it's very meaningful. You know, when I was living in a church-sponsored home for recovering heroin addicts, this was back in the mid nineteen seventies. We always mm-hmm. called the folks who lived there residents, because we use the terminology of residential treatment centers. You use the term guest. Can you expound on that a little bit? Why why you use the term guest for those uh, who come to Guadalupe House, to the community for in times of distress or uh, there seems to be a lot of meaning packed into that that yeah, designation. I think, it, mm-hmm. I think it goes back to um, to the personalism that Dorothy Day taught and practiced. And uh, again, it's it's not simply providing a service; it's actually creating a community with our guests. Um, I don't know the word "guest" to me just it sounds warmer. It sounds like a deeper level of. Um, of connection than simply resident, right? A person who's just there is a resident, but a person who's a guest is welcomed and they're made a part of things. And, and that's more of our approach uh, with the folks who, who live with us. And um, depending on their interests and their, uh, the time they have and the jobs they are, you know, we welcome them to be involved in uh, the things that we do, uh, the spiritual practices that we have, the work parties that we have, uh, and through that, you know, really getting to know people and to be able to support them uh, in in a, a significant way. Um, so yeah, I think that's why we use the term guest. It's a it's a word of welcoming and come be a part. Uh, not just, you know, here's room, do your own thing, uh, but come be a part. Yeah, it seems to have a lot to do with human dignity. That maybe yes. a resident sometimes sounds like some someone who is a project that you do things to. But yes, when you say we guests, really try to avoid. Yeah, we you know, we really try to avoid thinking that we are here to fix people. (laughs) We're not, you know, they come to us with goals in mind. um, And, and we provide support connection, you know, to help them move ahead, but they, they do the work. You know, we, we do not do the work. They do the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a, a, a beautiful image 
of human relationships. And, and what about the religious element? Um, some might jump to a conclusion that you have to be Catholic in order to be part of a Catholic worker community. Some may think, well, wh what are you after? You know, conversion? Are you hoping these people, if they don't have uh, Christian faith, will convert to Catholicism or to Christian faith? What, what, what's the religious element in, in the life of the community? Yes, one of the one of the things we joke about sometimes is that the Catholic workers are not Catholic and that we don't work. <laughs> and um, the fact is, we work a lot. But in the last ten years, I have not had a W two job. So you know, my my work is my days are very full with a lot of work, but it's not employment that is compensated. Um, as far as the Catholic. Uh, the whole history of our community, for sure, has been uh, Catholic small c, uh, meaning more universal. So uh, we don't, you know, discriminate as far as the Catholic workers or our guests for, you know, race, religion, sexual orientation. We're we're a very open community. That way, we allow people to be on the spiritual paths that they are on. We do make it clear that that you know. Uh, the really the founding motivation of our community is, is the the gospel acts of mercy you know clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and burying the dead and visiting visiting the prisoners and you know that's really what what motivates us and then we've had um in the past before covid for 30 years we did an open house prayer service and meal um in our in our living room and kitchen and uh, but we don't require people to uh, attend the prayer service in order to get food um, mm. so sometimes we have a group of people that are waiting outside the door for the prayer service to be over so they can come in uh, but many of the people who do come to that prayer service and that and that was led by um, a collection of people on a rotation uh, so some uh, some men, some women, some Catholic priests would actually do mass in the during that. Uh, other folks would would do um, whatever sort of the gospel liturgy was for that week. Some would do a meditation time. Um, we would, yeah. Uh, some and we've held um, we've held funeral services for homeless people who have died. We've paid for cremations and buried homeless people. We have a little plot in our community. Um, so we, we have actually buried the dead, you know, in our community. Um, and we as Catholic workers have a spiritual practice of starting each one of our, um, each one of our meetings with, uh, with prayer, a devotional reading, um, and, you know, a check-in together. Um, Father Bix really kind of set the tone for this community and his funeral was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. Um, he he um, had a profound impact. He was born in Tacoma and spent most of his life here. And uh, when, when he passed away, the community here built a wooden casket. So we built a casket for him. Um, during the funeral, um, some women, native, Native American women came in and they were smudging with sage and a big eagle feather. And then the um, Buddhist monks came in chanting and, and praying. 
because Vix had, had been on a number of peace walks with the Buddhist monks. And uh, then the female clergy came in. Of course, he was a Jesuit, which do not allow women. So the women clergy came in. And then his Jesuit brothers came in. And every one of those communities would claim Father Bix as being one of them. And he always uh, stood on, you know, I will respect, you know, your pra spiritual practices and I expect you to, to uh, respect mine as well. Um, so I think that's kind of how we go about our spirituality um, in our community. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. You're, you're leaving me somewhat choked up just imagining that. <laughs> Amazing oh, it was unbelievable! Tribute to him, yeah, and and to the ethos of the community. And now, when you have a leader of that quality, and now he has passed, uh, and the community is without him, how is it making that transition? That's always a big transition when a founder leaves the scene. Uh, how is the community doing? Has it had to change the way it does things uh, in the absence of of his influence? Yes, you know when you think about you know, organizational development, <laughs> and when an organization is led by a very charismatic, very beloved uh, person, and that person passes away, um, yeah, there's a there's a chance that the whole thing will just fall apart. Um, and I, I'm glad that I overlapped a number of years here with Father Bix because you know, I got to know him as a man and not just this sort of legend that he's become uh, <laughs> after he passed away. So uh, he, he was so great at asking people for things, and it was almost impossible for people to say no to him. <laughs> So I went mm. with him once. We needed some carpet for the Guadalupe house, and we went to this flooring store where he knew somebody or knew somebody who knew somebody, and he said, oh, we really need this carpet. It's for the homeless. We really need – the homeless people really need this carpet. And there was no way the guy was going to say no to him. So we walked out of there with a big roll of carpet in the truck, and um, and I was like, wow. <laughs> so a lot of the this material things and – and, and the labor was because people just loved Father Bix and he was so thoroughly committed to his good works that it was hard not to want to join in. Um, to his vast credit, uh, probably six or seven years before he passed away, he stepped out of leadership mm -hmm. and he allowed the present Catholic workers and the Catholic workers um, lead by consensus. So there's no director uh, or one head of our community. It's five people and we lead by consensus, which means if we don't all agree, then we don't move forward on things. So sometimes it can make our process a little bit slow, but I've found that um, the decisions we make are a lot wiser. Uh, they're certainly not spur of the moment because it takes the collective, it takes everybody to, to agree, to come to an agreement. So having stepped out, um, he really allowed the other leaders, other Catholic workers in the community, to step up and to hold and to carry the um, and to carry the uh, the leadership of the community. So when he did pass away, it was it didn't feel like this big 
a huge shock to the to the organizational system because we already were functioning without him and he kind of became almost like an emeritus uh kind of role within the community but then of course we once he passed away we lost the ability to to go, you know, get a free rug from the rug guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, and, you know, a number of the longtime faithful uh, donors, financial donors, you know, began to pass away, you know, and we couldn't, we couldn't use uh, the Bix card <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the way we used to before. And so, and how have um, you met that challenge in, in this, <laughs> in this new phase? How have you met that, yeah. that particular challenge? Yes. So, you know, we, we've continued to, um, again, this whole new generation of, of um, donors is, has different motivations and different patterns of giving than the older folks do. So we've upped our social media. We've had a, you know, a social media consultant. We've completely redone our website. And we just keep telling our story and inviting people to be a part um, in, in any way you know, that, that they can or, or are able. And, um, and the giving has, has not gone down. We've gotten new donors who, you know, don't know who Bix is at all, but they see our work and they see what we're doing. And, and, um, you know, hopefully when COVID's done, we'll able be able to uh, welcome uh, more uh, work parties and, and um, student groups and things like that. And so, uh, so to Bix's great credit, he, you know, he didn't, you know, hold on tightly to the very end. You know, he he held the the um, the leadership very loosely, and he he handed it over when in good time for us to establish ourselves as leaders, so that when he passed away, you know, we were already functioning that way. Mm-hmm. Has the and we story... still get a lot of we we still got uh, last week. You know, a check came through uh, in memorial to Bill Bixell. You know, and it was like, wow, that's beautiful. So we still do, you know, there are still donations that come in memoriam uh, of Bix. But, you know, the the main, you know, running and financing of it, you know, we, we've picked up and, and and folks have continued to support us. Has the founder's story, has Father Bixler's story been told in any kind of a biography or or is it is it chronicled somewhere? Uh, it has not, um, and yeah, we we periodically wonder, you know, whether we should do that or whether we should find somebody uh, to mm. tell his story because it is it is really compelling. Like I said, he was an amazing man of compassion. Um, he also uh, his stints in federal prison, he would call those his retreats. <laughs> he said, "Oh, I'm going mm. on retreat now," <laughs> and in fact, when I first joined the the community he still had three more months to serve in the federal prison. And um, when he got out, of course, he was, you know, they had him on uh, the home monitor, you know, the ankle bracelet for, Mm. I think, six months. And so when he first got out, we had an ankle bracelet party where everybody came (laughs) with, you know, their version (laughs) of an ankle bracelet um, just Mm. to kind of show show support and a little humor. to to that um but yeah one of the the biggest acts that that he did um was called plowshares and there's a the bangor nuclear power plant or nuclear sub plant is not far from tacoma and it's one of the largest collections of um you know of weapons in the world you know nuclear submarines and um 
he and several other uh, nuns and uh, folks in their 70s and 80s actually cut through several fences and got within 25 feet of the nuclear weapons. Um, and they were throwing uh, they were throwing sunflower seeds. And, uh, and it was basically to say, you know, these things are not as safe as they claim they are. Look, old people can basically walk right up to them. We just did. Mm -hmm. And you know, what if we had been terrorists, right? We could be right here. And so it really embarrassed the military a lot. And that plowshares uh, movement has gotten, I think it's been being made into a, a, a short documentary. And there's been a lot of, uh, it got national attention. And so that's one of the things that Father Bix did that, that really got, got noticed in a big way. Um, but he, you know, I constantly meet people who say, oh, yeah, Father Bix, he, he baptized me, baptized my kids, he married us. You know, he was, um, his whole life wasn't these, you know, grand gestures. Uh, his whole life w was just being with people. And, uh, and he was one of those people that when you were with him, him, you felt like you were the only person in the world. You know, he could give you that just undivided attention and always with um, a deep well of compassion. And, uh, and that's his legacy. Well, maybe we have a writer in our podcast family <laughs> uh, who would take on that challenge uh, and write that story for you. Uh, if anyone wants to be involved with the community there, with the work that you're doing, and we didn't talk about how you make your way in life, I mean, uh, I think folks can support your work. Uh, how do they find you? How, how do they locate you? And how do they locate Guadalupe House and the Catholic Worker Community in Tacoma? Yeah, the best way is our website, uh, TacomaCatholicWorker.com. That's simple. We've done that. It it's, it's, uh, really tells our story well. There's a number of blog posts as well where we put our uh, recent news things like that up. And uh, that would be the best way. You know, I'm thinking about people who have an impulse to help. And, and you know, I'm still enough of a believer in in uh, New Testament content that there is a particular gift of giving. And if you have that gift of generosity, uh, here's a place, you know, sometimes you wonder if I send off this money to this particular charity, who gets it and who gets a slice of it? And do the fundraisers take a percentage or a good part of it? Uh, and you wonder about those things. Well, with Guadalupe House and the Catholic Worker Community, there aren't any professional fundraisers skimming off the top, right, Gary? I mean, it's just you guys. No, there's not. <laughs> and uh, and you're not, not compensated. There's no fat salaries. There's no uh, limousines. There's no five-star Michelin <laughs> restaurant uh, expense accounts. There's no private jets. And that can't be said about every Christian charity nope. in America. Uh, so uh, please, if you have an impulse to be generous, please be generous with Guadalupe House, with the work that Gary Waldron is doing there with his cohort and with the guests uh, in the community in Tacoma, Washington. And of course, they have an impact 
uh, much in in much wider spaces because you're inspiring us now you're inspiring me and you know sometimes gary uh, you know we get criticized there are people who say you know really what what's the dietrich bonhoeffer institute all about i mean really are you just trying to keep uh, a dead german theologian's legacy alive <laughs> you know is that really worth it um, well, we're about a lot more than that. And one is by drawing attention to people who are living out Bonhoeffrian ethics in the real world. And that describes you to a T, that describes the community that you are a part of. So really part of our work is to support and celebrate your work. And, and so I hope our friends in the podcast community will do that. I'm so glad they know you now and that they were part of this conversation. If you want to know more about Gary and the community, just look at the links in the text surrounding this podcast, get in touch with them, check them out, uh, and pray for them and support them. And maybe even, uh, dare I say, Let's all try to emulate them, at least in part. Gary, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for sharing the anecdotes. They're just terrific. This is modern day gospel work, and we're so grateful to God for it and for you. So thanks for spending Thank this you, time Robert. with me. Thank you, Robert. I really enjoyed it. By the way, folks, only he calls me Robert, but that's because I was once his student. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me apologize. If anybody heard some ambient noise, I'm, kind, I'm remote today. I'm, I'm not in my normal studio-like environment. So if you've been hearing a little background noise, don't blame it on Gary or the community. Uh, they're in a nice little vow of silence, at least for this <laughs> time. Uh, it, the noise is on my side, so sorry to anybody who was distracted by it. I know you weren't distracted by the conversation with Gary. It was absolutely compelling. Gary, I'll, I'll see you soon. Um, thanks for being a part of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer family. Thank you for all you've done for me and for doing your part to foster the vision that became the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Much love and blessings to you. Thank you.